Friends, Brian here for Yes, You Can Play Guitar. And once again, thank you so much for checking in on our podcast. Today we've got a great guest, Dave Roussan, the luthier who built the famous cloud guitar for Prince. If you guys have any knowledge of Prince lore, you're very well aware of the unique guitar, the cloud guitar. Awesome interview that the Solitary Adventure and I did with Dave. You know, for any of you that have been following me for a while, you know my channel, although we talk about a lot of things music, we did a bit of a deep dive with Prince, and Dave was a great interview. Uh, he was just very chatty. He told us all kinds of cool stories. He knew Prince from when he was a little kid at the music store that he worked at and kind of saw him grow up. And also at one point, Dave auditioned for Prince's band. So he had all kinds of really cool stories. It was a bit of a longer interview, and it was it was really great, though, listening to all this different history that Dave experienced. And also, he is a huge Beatles fan, like huge. And ironically, the Solitary Adventurer lives in Liverpool, England. So uh, they really connected that way. And Dave was just like a, a kid in a <laughs> a kid in the candy store talking to the Solitary Adventurer about the Beatles. So, uh, but it was an amazing chat. And for all of you uh, into Prince and Prince's history, you're really going to like this one. Uh, Dave had so many stories. So again, guys, uh, if you want to support the podcast and support me at all, if you're ever on my YouTube channel, yes, you can play guitar. The easiest thing you can do is click the subscribe button. You know, in this day and age, YouTube has gotten very competitive. It gets harder and harder to get people to subscribe. This week, we are going to cross the 20,000 subscriber line. We are now, we're in April 2023 here. Our chat with uh, Dave took place back in November of 2022. Um, you can also check out my Patreons. I've got two communities. There's so many perks and added features in both of them. One is a reaction community. That's Patreon slash Yes, You Can Play Guitar. We also have a guitar community, Patreon slash YYCPG guitar community. So check it out. This is our interview with the one and only Luthier extraordinaire, the builder of Prince's famous cloud guitars, the one and only Dave Roussan. Everyone, it's Brian here for Yes You Can Play Guitar, and I'm with my good friend and big, big friend of our channel, The Solitary Adventure, and it's our absolute pleasure today, our absolute pleasure to have the one and only Dave Roussan, builder of the Cloud Guitar, here with us. All the Prince fans know about the Cloud Guitar, but he's a luthier, uh, guitar maker, guitar repairs, everything we got lots to talk about today. Welcome, Dave, so much. Thank you for giving us your time today. Oh, I'm glad to uh, do it. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you. I'd like to sort of just go right back to the beginning. I've seen several interviews with you um, over the years, but one thing that we never really get to hear about is, is your beginnings. So are you Minnesota born and bred? Yes, I was uh, born in St. Cloud, a medium-sized town about 60 miles north of Minneapolis. Nice town to grow up in, not too big, not too small, yeah. And Cold in, a lot. <laughs> yeah. When did you sort of migrate into the, the city, into Minneapolis, St. Paul? In my mid-20s, I uh, looking for 
more musicians to play with, better opportunities. You know, uh, it was, you know, uh, wow. a lot more people to meet, more clubs to play, and uh, it seemed like a thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dave, what, 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 got, what got you into guitar? What were your influences? Well, I loved the Beatles, you know, and uh, I just, I had a, you know, how people live when they often, when they accomplish something, they, they see themselves doing it. And then all they have to do is get the skills and make it happen. And I, I could see myself playing for my high school uh, classmates and having the girls uh, be impressed. And I thought, well, and I just love music. And I just thought I got to get the guitar. I got to do it. And I already had music in my head. I, 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 it wasn't like a pastime. It was like I had musical thoughts and I had to get them out. It's probably a good time for me to tell you that I'm in Liverpool, so the, the home of the Beatles. Oh, <laughs> yes, I spent a, yeah. uh, a lovely weekend there. I even got to hear a, a Gary Gibson. You know, okay. I, I've heard of the name, I've, I've never seen it. Oh, yep. yeah. Yeah, I had a lovely uh, weekend there in the 80s. Yeah, it was fun. Okay, I'm sure we're going to get to... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I know that you spent some time in, in England uh, at the, the start of oh, the yeah. 80s, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get yeah, that. about a year. But it's nice yeah, that you made the pilgrimage to Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, it was... I went with a, a tour bus of American uh, tourists, but they all... After the tours were over during the day, they all just hung around together in the Holiday Inn at night, and I went out on my own, and uh, I met a guy that was a, a fireman in Penny Lane. <laughs> wow. Went from pub to pub. I had just a hell of a good time, you know. So, yeah. Dave, how old were you when you actively started pursuing the guitar and started learning, practicing, taking lessons, all that stuff? Uh, about 14. Yeah. I had a teacher for about a year. He was not a good rock player. He was a good chord melody jazz guy, you know. Okay. He really couldn't play rock all that well, but he right away he made me learn a lot of chords, which uh, served me well. I still remember them all too. It was yeah, the he... Mel Bay orchestral chord method. It was called. Oh my I god! I remember Mel Bay. Thing. Did uh, yeah, yeah. Did you have to learn how to read notation right off the bat? Yeah, yeah, I had the, yeah, I did, and, and uh, you know, some teachers frowned on rock and roll, you know, and a lot of it wasn't that good, you know, to, to be honest, but uh, some was, and, uh, and I, you know, uh, I loved everything. I even had B.B. King albums and Muddy Waters albums, because people said I should get them, you know, and, and so I listened to that stuff, too, right away. So what was your, when you, at that point in your playing, what was your favorite guitar? Like, what was was what was your favorite guitar? Like, what shape, brand? Well, I, my first one was a, a Gibson ES three thirty, a one pickup, used, and I just liked the thin line kind of guitar. So then, my dad, as I got better, he bought me an ES three forty five, and uh, those appealed to me a lot. I didn't get into Fenders until I was well into my 20s. It was, it was kind of funny. In St. Cloud, uh, there weren't any Fender dealers. Everything was Gibson and Gretsch, you know. And, okay. uh, and uh, you know, so they were kind of somewhat foreign to me, you know. And uh, I mean, I knew they existed, but uh, I was a Gibson guy and I loved the thin lines. 
So you mentioned earlier about having the, you know, musical thoughts in your head and needing the tool set to get them out. How long did it take after you started learning before you could actually get them out of your, out of your, your imagination? Well, I worked pretty fast. Uh, you know, I even wrote songs right away. I learned some Dick Dale stuff and, mm. uh, and accompanied the school choirs, you know, a girl from Ipanema, some jazz stuff. I, I had all those chords under my belt really quick because that guy really wanted me to learn that stuff, you know, and I thought, well, I guess I'll do that. And, uh, and I got in a little band, you know, boy, it was probably terrible. <laughs> I had to teach the bass player how to play. He didn't even have a bass. He just played guitar and turned the tone down and, you know, but I wanted to, I loved the Beatles. I wanted to reproduce that stuff. When you love a song, it's so exciting to recreate it with your friends, you know, boy, I just thought that was the greatest thing, you know. Before I became we, uh, known yeah. at school because I wasn't into sports. I became known as the guy that played guitar. So it felt uh, good. We're going to keep going with the timeline, of course. We have a lot of interesting to talk, interesting things to talk about. But I just want, to, as a guitar player, I want to ask you this. Um, I always struggled with funk music, like just the right hand with a certain type of sixteenth notes with the groove and everything. I'm still not that great at it. It was something I, I had to kind of work at just to be possible. Is that something you got into, or were naturally uh, adept at? Doing? No, no. I that would. Be so it's not just worst. me, Dave. It's not just no, me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't relaxed enough. I was not a relaxed kind of guy. Mm -hmm. In fact, I developed some uh, tendinitis problems and stuff just because I couldn't relax. And I didn't have oh. a teacher that looked at the big picture. It was like, here's a chord, here's a lick. But nobody said, well, look at, look at your hand position. Look, mm. What are you thinking about when you play? Uh, you know, your, your hands, your arms, you know, they're not looking naturally. You got too, using too much pressure in your left hand. Like a good, I didn't have anybody that was like a good coach, you know. Yeah. I think I think part of it, you know, and it's something I'm, I'm probably going to touch future on in my channel. I, I you know, I've, I've had a lot of success with teaching over the years, but there's some people that teach to live, and then there's some teachers that live to teach. And unfortunately, there's a lot of teachers out there that they just teach to live, and it's just really just a job to them. Maybe that's kind of what you went through as well. Well, the guy, uh, he did spend too much time showing off to me, mm. you know, things that. I would be impressed with, but it would be so beyond me that he was kind of amusing himself at my own expense a little bit, you know. Yeah. And then I didn't take any more lessons, although I had later I had college theory, uh, a couple of years of that. Boy, you know, everybody else thought it was boring. I thought it was fantastic. All of a yeah. sudden, I was learning about how music worked, mm -hmm. and uh, that helped me a lot. Interval training every day, yeah. you know. I got to and was it now I, I don't need the guitar to I can I can mentally jam I don't need the guitar to play really even yeah. I can see where everything is if I can't sleep at night I, I make up a lick and then I play it in every key in my head and in different octaves and so I don't really need the guitar you know I mean I like to play but you know it I'm so busy I hardly ever get a chance but I, I can do it I actually can it's amazingly satisfying that way too, yeah. you know. I had a nap today and I, I jammed an E and played all my country licks. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about Minnesota that there's so many musically talented people? Because this doesn't sound normal to me as a, as a, a non-guitar player, that somebody, you know, could have that fertile mind. 
do you think that there's something Probably special about we can't, Yeah, it could be that we don't we don't get outside much uh, half of the year. And uh, in fact, Prince uh, said that was part of the reason that they practice so much. You know, yeah. To me, you know, the, you yeah, I you know a lot of my customers, uh, not to be critical at all, but there's there's some where they really. They're more collectors or people that enjoy the technology, or but they, some of them they don't think of it. What I think it, it's it's a tool. In other words, if you have musical thoughts, the guitarists have people in the room enjoy them and, and know that you have them. And uh, I don't see a lot of people looking at the ultimate goal of playing. You know, it's either the equipment a lot of times or technique uh without that goal in mind you know and uh yeah and i was lucky to have all that theory uh and the uh, especially the ear training so I, I i i can learn while i'm working I, I have the stereo on if i hear a lick i like i'm able to uh i'm not bragging but i can ignore what it come after that lick as though it, the music stopped and i can I can think about what the notes were and what it was played over and go, oh, yeah, well, you know, so. You know, I, I have a, a saying that I tell everyone. Uh, I learned this from a guy who, in my area, he, he was a very busy working musician. Because people really do get caught up in the gear and the new effects. And, and now with all the stuff, you know, I don't want to spend a week of programming. It's it really, it's like my philosophy is a good amp, a few pedals, uh, you know, a good guitar on your fingers, you know, like. So I know some guys, they just, I'm like, dude, if you'd spend a, a third of that time practicing <laughs> that you do noodling around with your new toys all the time, you'd be a better player. But uh, I find it's really crazy now how a lot of people just seem to be chasing their tail with gear all the time. Yeah, some of them do enjoy it an awful lot. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fair, fun. that's fair. As yeah. long as they understand uh, that that maybe isn't the, the means to an end. Uh, I, have, I have a friend that has the fractal thing, which is amazing, but... <laughs> Yeah. I know he spends much more time programming it than he does playing. Yeah. Bingo, exactly. Yeah. So look in terms of the, fans, sorry. Excuse me, I was going to say, look at all the amazing players that had pretty ordinary gear that anybody could have bought in the store, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the people that we revere came from a time where there was no technology. You know, oh, like Jimmy yeah. Page did, didn't have much to work with, did he, you know? Or B.B. King, he had even less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mentioned... A little. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned uh, that the bands that you were in. I mean, were, were you successful on a local level and that took you to Minneapolis? Or what, what was the background now? That was a time when there were a lot of baby boomers that were starting to be at the age that they could go to nightclubs. So there were just a ton of places to play. You could make a lower middle class living just playing five, six nights a week for years on end and never even hardly ever leave town. You know, it was you, it was a it was great. You know, you'd have your days off, go to the beach, uh, you practice some, but uh, it just went on for years. You know, it, all that time on the bandstand, you know, and, although it's funny, some of the players I don't know why they, some of them got better and some of them really didn't, even with all that playing time, you know. But uh, yeah. it was, yeah, it was, it was a time, there was a, a, a highway and there was like uh, hotel clubs and nightclubs just 
for like miles on end and they'd be packed every night. I mean, it was, that's all gone now, you know, but uh, yeah. it was, oh, it was just, it was so easy to do, yeah. 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 So what sort of time period are we talking about when you make that move to, to Minneapolis to 20? That'd be about 1974. And that kind of, uh, the, all the, the clubs and all that stuff, that lasted about 15 years, maybe 20, you know, somewhere in there. And then yeah. uh, laws changed, the drunken driving laws got tougher and uh, different things that should, probably should have. Yeah, it just kind of, and then, you know, people stay home more. They got the big TVs and there's, there's a club scene here, but it's not, it's not like that anymore where you can be in one band. I was in a, a house band. We played the same place for like a year and a half. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing like that anymore. Yeah. And was that cover songs or songs that you'd written or mixture? Oh, no, you, to do that, you'd have to play covered tunes but they could be ones you liked that was in one band we mostly played steely dan and the eagles you know that wasn't so bad no nope. wasn't proud Still mary all night you know yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so you when you make that move to minneapolis are you a gigging musician at that time or is do you go and start work at, at new coop uh sort of early on at that point Soon after I got to Minneapolis, I went to them and uh, they needed somebody. Um, there had been what, what's called the Robin Trower incident. Robin Trower at his peak, I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, yeah, I do. He yeah. came in there and one of the store owners uh, kind of thought he was a guitar repairman, but he did something to Robin Trower's guitar that made him so mad that he stormed out of the store. <laughs> And uh, it was quite a, it was bad. So I, I, I had been, since high school, I've been working on my own stuff. As soon as I got a guitar, it wasn't just to play. I had to see what was going on inside. My, my dad got me a new Moserite and I looked at that pick guard and I thought, boy, what's under that pick guard? I had to take it off, you know, and just, I had to, I had to mess with them, kind of like a guy that, then buys a car not just to drive around to the grocery store but he wants to get under the hood you know so by that time i was doing refrets and stuff and i started a little shop in the basement of the store almost within about a year of arriving in minneapolis um okay. Dave, do you do you i love guitar i love playing i love teaching uh i had taken courses on doing setups i got some guitars with floyd roses on them and stuff it's just it's just over my head. It's something like I have a guitar guy that does all the work for me. Uh, what, like, when did you find that you just naturally, you got it? Like you just gravitated towards uh, that whole other aspect of the guitar, like the construction, the setups, the installing the electron, like I'm trying to word it right what I'm saying. Cause it was just something that, uh, especially doing the setups for me, I was just like, ah, um, when, where, what age were you where it just kind of, turned into a really strong interest, aside from the playing guitar and playing in bands. As soon as I got a guitar, I was very sensitive to how it played. Other people could play any guitar, just pick it up and play. Uh, to me, I, if it didn't feel good, I just was so affected by that. And uh, there weren't any really good guitar repairmen, even in Minneapolis, uh, the, mm. that I could find. I, really? I Once I took a 
the guitar I had him do a fret level and I think he start, stopped with about 80 grit sandpaper and I'd be doing bends on it and I'd hear scraping sounds and I remember thinking boy you know I think I could do better in that so you know, how it felt and performed really uh, would affect me and how I felt about playing if it didn't guitar didn't play good I just didn't enjoy it you know I was so sensitive to that that I had to do something about it you know so I uh, and there weren't any books there was a guy in town that was a little bit of a mentor to me but a lot of it was just trial and error when I could do something to mine my friends would say well your, your guitar plays good now how about if you try doing mine you know and and then when I finally did the first refret, that was a big milestone. I don't oh, know, yeah, it probably wasn't any good. The first one, I remember I went to a store, I got some fret wire and the guy said, well, you know how to use this stuff? He kind of gave me a hard time. And I said, well, I'm going to find out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, it went uh, pretty good. And uh, I just... It seemed, you know, it, it, all along, looking back, it seems like that was what I was meant to do, really, you know. I never get sick of it either. And you said that you you uh, you took up the, the basement at New Coop. So you must have had a, a few clients and yeah. people coming to you at that point? Yeah, I had a few of my own, and then I had their customers, you know, and... Uh, it was a fun store. All the other stores in town were owned by guys that were the age of your dad. So it was like you're going to go see your grumpy uncle that buy a guitar. But Nick Coupay, they were the same age as us. They were guys that did gigs at night and people would hang out there. It was fun. They would do goofy things during the daytime and, you know, and just not be real serious a lot of the time. It was a fun place, you know. And um, was there already uh, was, a thriving music very, scene at that point? Yeah, oh yeah, it had been thriving a long time. In the 60s, there was a couple guys that did record jobbing. I don't know if you ever heard that term. It's a, uh, say you had a little department store, these guys that say, hey, you know, we'll come to your store, we'll set up a record shop, you know, because the Beatles, everything is so big and we'll, we'll supply the records, you, you get a cut. And uh, then they thought, you know, we're, we're supplying all these records. How about if we make our own? So they bought, they got a recording studio in town. They bought it and they would offer all the local bands a package for like 500 bucks. They'd record two sides, A and B. They'd get a box of records to sell at Teen Hops. And every band in town did that. And there, there were a few hits that come out of that. I don't know if you ever heard of the song Surfing Bird by the Trashman. That was a novelty hit. Uh, Six Days on the Road by Dave Dudley was done there. Uh, so it was it was a hot market, you know. The only thing was that Minneapolis was not a town where you would make it. If you had any aspirations to the big time, at some point you'd say, well, it's time to go to LA, you know, before Prince anyway. Well, and then there was the punk kind of seen uh, Husker Du in the suburbs in the late I remember 70s, them. but it wasn't a mainstream thing. What's that? Oh, I remember Husker oh, yeah. Du, yeah. But uh, it was a, oh yeah, there was, it was a big scene though. There was uh, replacements, uh, suicide commandos. Uh, there was a whole bunch of them. Mm. But uh, generally it was a great place to have a gig almost every night. It had a thriving scene, but it was not, it was flyover land for the big time. 
And were you playing at the same time as, as running the, the, the shop? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah, I was burning the candle at both ends, yeah. That, uh, so I have to ask fun. for the... I liked both of it, you know. It wasn't like going to two factory jobs. They were both fun, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was doing both. In fact, I'm, I was often torn between the two, you know. Uh, sometimes I, I actually quit for a while just because I wanted not to be inside in the summer and, and then play every night, you know. But I, I came back to it, you know. And uh, I just enjoy the, especially the fret work, something about that. I never get sick of that. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but did Robin Trower ever come back? No. <laughs> no. He went to another store called Pete's Guitars in St. Paul, a guy named Pete Allenoff, who became an internationally known. He sold guitars to everybody from the Stones to the Who. He was one of the first big uh, guitar dealers to rock stars in the world starting in the early 70s. Okay. Uh, he uh, was good friends with a guy. Um, oh, what was his name? He was a big guitar roadie for everybody. Uh, I can't think of his name. But uh, no, that was the end of Robin Trower and uh, coming into the store. <laughs> yeah. But if whatever happened, was it was an ugly scene. So take us back to, to that period. You're doing uh, your work in the, the basement. Are you also helping out in the shop and are you giving guitar lessons or anything outside uh, of the performance? Yeah, I gave some lessons later, but mostly just did the repairs. You know, they had a small, it, the store was tiny at first. Oh, it was just, I bet the showroom was about 10 by 12 feet. I mean, it was mm. just a tiny little place. Uh, and, and who would be coming in at that, that sort of period? You know, anyone other than you know, the name that we're, we're all going to mention at, at length today. Were, were there any other names that came through that we would recognize? Well, not too many stars at that point. Uh, you know, uh, I remember I did go down. Well, I, I did stuff for, uh, this would be a little later, around the late 70s. I did work for Cliff Richards' band. Cliff came to play. Okay. I did work for, yeah, well, no, it was not the Shadows anymore. It was his backup band for his solo career. Okay. Uh, you know who Terry Britton is? He was in it. And, uh, and yep. then I did work, once they sent me on location, to a, a show by Twisted Sister and... Um, okay, uh, what is that? Uh, a metal band uh, from the 70s and 80s. Uh, uh, well, anyway, there was a couple. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. They're named after a torture device. So what was that thing? Uh, Iron Maiden? It's, it's escaping my mind at the minute. What's that? Iron Maiden. Yeah. yeah. They, they did a, a double show together. Iron Maiden and, and, uh, and Twisted Sister. I went and worked on location on their stuff. Uh, there was a guy named Sean Phillips, who was a big deal back then, a kind of a folk rock guy and stuff for him. Um, but it was mostly the working musicians, you know, that needed work on their guitars. Yeah. So uh, I've seen you interview before, and I know that you auditioned for 
Prince's band when Prince sort of started his solo career. But can you fill in the, the, the gap of sort of, was that the first time you'd ever come across Prince? Or any of the, oh, you know, no, the, the been, people around Prince? He'd been coming in for years when he was in high school. He had a big afro and he'd come in with his first uh, manager with his friends and he would play. I remember once he came in and he had a guitar on and he tapped a melody on with his left hand and played a harmony on a synthesizer at the same time. And, and everybody knew that he was very good. Uh, you know, but back then, uh, the uh, black musicians, they, there was quite a bit of prejudice. They didn't play, you didn't see them in the mainstream white clubs. They all played on clubs on the north side of Minneapolis, kind of like in Chicago, they got the south side blues, you know, it was the north side. And, uh, but after that first album, I don't think it was a huge success, but we all knew that he was very talented and probably would go somewhere. So every guitar player in town just about wanted to try out, you know, for this thing that looked like it really was going to go somewhere because he was on a major label, Warner Brothers. Mm, and yeah. uh, it looked like, you know, he had a, a career, so everybody tried out, you know. So was that a word of mouth thing or was it being publicized in, you know, sort of the music journals? Well, it was kind of word of mouth, although I knew the drummer, Bobby Z. I knew him a little bit. And uh, yeah, they held it at a rehearsal place. It was an abandoned tire warehouse, really crummy, beat up old place, cinder block building, you know. And, and I went in and there was, there was a, Prince had put a big picture of Jimi Hendrix, a poster on the wall. And there were rugs on the floor. And, you know, and at that time it was Bobby Z, the drummer, and Andre Simone, the first bass player. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Nobody else yet. And Prince, of course. And so what, he what came did you... in. Uh, he, uh, what's that? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what, what, how did the audition go? What, what sorts of tunes would you play? Well, we just jammed. Uh, mostly one chord jams, you know. He, Prince played the Oberheim synthesizer for a while. And he played drums, and he was a much more funky drummer, you know, uh, than uh, Bobby Z. And, yep. uh, it, you know, it kind of went on for a while, and he didn't talk to me at all, hardly at all. Mm. He did point at my guitar at some point and ask me what it was, because I had an Epiphone coronet that I made a new pickguard for, so it looked different. And then he got up and walked out and uh, Bobby uh, Z said, boy, David looks good, but I got to tell you that he is looking for a black female guitar player. And at that time I was neither of those. So, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, he did, uh, you know, so it, you know, that was the end of that. And uh, yeah, the jams were, they're very competent, but yeah, there were no tunes, you know, it was just jammed over a, a funky uh, E9 chord until it was kind of ground into the ground and did something else, you know, and, uh, yeah. but it, yeah, it was, at least I can say I did it, you know. Do you remember? So you, oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Sorry, uh, you just, you mentioned that you knew Bobby, Bobby Rivkin, Bobby Z. Was that because, yeah. you know, he would come into the store with Prince and Owen and they would, they would uh, jam or do you, do you go back? on a, a personal level. I can't remember how that went. Um, I, 
there was um, there was kind of a clan of different people that hung out together. One was you ever heard that song "Funky Town"? Oh yeah, yeah. It was the, a disco hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The guy that that produced that and wrote the song, he was a friends of him. And uh, Dr. Matt Fink was part of that group, and I knew him from yeah. club band. So there was this kind of this group of people. Uh, a lot of them were Jewish, and they 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 were all very clever people that hung out. And I think I mostly knew uh, Matt, although he wasn't in the band yet, you know. And and I think that's how I got introduced to uh, Bobby. Bobby's brother David Z produced uh, Prince's demos that were done in a studio, you know, so there was that connection. Yeah. I, 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 I had done, I'd done commercials at that studio too, so. Okay. Yes. So you mentioned when he'd, he'd come into the shop and obviously he'd, he'd play a guitar on one hand and a, a, a keyboard on the other. But I would imagine he had Andre Simone with him or some, you know, some of his other guys. How t- did he stand out? It was Andre. How's that? Yep. Sorry. Did he stand out or was Andre equally as, as, as talented at that time? Well, what stood out about Prince, number one, is he was real good on guitar, but he could play all the other instruments, you know, and I saw him do that. I saw him do it at the jam. I saw him play synthesizer at the store. Uh, didn't hear him sing at all at that time. He didn't sing at the jam or anything else, but he, he was uh, very exciting and uh, he had kind of a mysterious thing about him. I've seen there's some Prince impersonators, but there's mm-hmm. something about Prince. He was so exotic and kind of mysterious that none of them, the rest of them just seemed like regular guys, you know, and, yeah. uh, and he, he had that already, you know, he didn't, boy, he, he he didn't say much. To, he had no small talk, but he could he could express whatever he had to. Once I saw him rehearsing the band, and you would have thought a theater director had taken over his body. He mm. was saying, "Now, Wendy, I know you can do this part. You, know, you just try it again." I, I thought, "My God, he can do whatever it takes to do to get the goal done." But he he's just not a small talker. There's nothing isn't useful he just wouldn't talk at all you know you know i'm going to deliberately come back to that because okay. I'm, I'm just conscious of, of jumping around the timeline and yeah I'm, i kind of just want to nail down with you when you did that audition so i i believe it was dell's tire mart is that is that the name of yeah yeah the location yeah, yeah. over in seven corners yeah yeah i drove I think uh, around was... i drove around that area yeah, i think a there's a hotel ago. sitting there yeah, yeah big I think there's a hotel yeah. sitting there, Holiday Inn yeah. or something. Yeah, that was probably about 1979, mm. I would guess. Was, would yeah. that be about it? Uh, I think probably late late 78, somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I was I got to be a pretty good guitar player, so I I was took myself seriously in that role too, you know, and uh, thought uh, you know I thought this is I got to try this, you know, let's see what happens, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then obviously, uh, you would have seen uh, Bobby and Gail Chapman and these other people get recruited, or probably heard it through the grapevine. Did you, yeah, did you and I, follow yeah. Prince's career I mean, much I, after that? Yeah, well, yeah, and I knew Des Dickerson a little bit. He was in a local band and he could do a, a fantastic uh, Jimi Hendrix tribute. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
I, I can just see him do it now. He wore a suit, you know, and he was uh, he was a good he was a top player in town, you know. So I remember when he got the job, I thought, well, yeah, that's that'll, that'll do the trick. Um, yeah, I followed him. I went to different things. Uh, I think it was '85. He had one of his birthday parties. He did it, a concert at First Avenue. I had tickets yeah. to that, you know, one right up front. Um, he had one of his birthdays at a big ballroom called the Prom Ballroom. It was like one of those ballrooms in a, like from the 30s, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, under, with his own money, he had the ceiling painted purple. And they just left it after that. And he had jugglers and some movie stars were there. It was all, oh, it was a wow. big deal, you know. He knew how to yeah. have a, you know, how to make things special, you know, make it, make it you know, make it interesting, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's a, a little period of maybe four or five years before, uh, you know, he comes in to Newt Coop and asks for the, the cloud guitar, the infamous cloud guitar. But in that period, how much of uh, maybe his career or people who were in his bands, were people coming in asking for repairs and, and work done on instruments at that point? Yeah, it... Um... You mean people from his band and such? Uh, well, just I people from that his, circle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I worked on uh, Princess L5 before that. I worked on the bass that, that we used as the, the model for the guitar with the horn, you know? Yeah. Um, worked uh, Later on, I did stuff for uh, Jesse Johnson. Uh, mm-hmm. It's either Jimmy Jam or Terry Lewis, the one that played bass. I did his stuff. Terry. I yeah. So, um, Mark Brown, I uh, did a bass for him. We had a woman that could do um, rose mauling, that Swedish folk art, you know, with flowers that they often do on cab, you know, okay. like cabinets and stuff. Uh, that, and then I made a guitar for Wendy that's in a photo that I have. It was, she wanted a, a clear plexiglass guitar with flowers inside the plexiglass embedded in it. Right. Uh, with a Rickenbacker neck. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which, oh, that, that, was, that was so difficult to do. And then it was ultimately too heavy for. What, what era was that? Is that while she was in the band with Prince? That would be 84 when we did that. Okay. Yeah, summer of 84. Uh, yeah. yeah, she had an idea that was intriguing, but we, you know, they were all so busy. You could never talk to anybody, Prince or yeah. her, to uh, iron out things, you know, like, you know, will it be too heavy? You know, she had a concept and I did what she wanted and it was, yeah. you know, it was heavy. But uh, uh, yeah, I did, uh, who else? Uh, well, there was a, a, oh, a couple other bands. Um, you know, when you have a scene in an area, like, say Liverpool, you know, there weren't just the Beatles, there were hundreds of bands of varying levels yeah. of success. And in Minneapolis, it was kind of like that too. Then everybody, they all dressed kind of like Prince did, you know, in the fancy outfits. There was a, a female band and then there was, uh, oh, there was a whole bunch of them, you know. That he, Prince really single-handedly took Minneapolis and there was this flyover land where you could never make it, mm. you know, and turned it into the center of everything, you know, the television crews would come and, and film me making stuff, you know, and 
people had been out, they'd come down. I remember some woman from France came down and wanted to meet me and was so excited because she thought she saw the dumpster where, where they threw the girl in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So every day was uh, fun every day. You know, we, uh, the store owner, he had a thousand tambourines painted purple, you know, and it was, uh, it was just every day was exciting. Yeah. Uh, Dave, yep. we, we have a really good Patreon group. Patreon is usually the supporters of a YouTube channel. Um, we have one member, his name is uh, US Agent, uh, and he asked the question, I think you pretty much answered it, uh, but he just said, uh, did Dave make uh, guitars for Andre Simone, Jesse Johnson, or any other guitar player in the Purple Camp? I think for the most part you touched on that with what you had just told us. Yeah, there was another repairman while I was gone in London, and then I, I, I resumed when I came back, and um, I think he made Jesse's guitar, but I worked on them all. I remember Jesse was, um, we painted one of them pink, but he thought it was a little too purple, and he, he was worried. He said, this looks a little too much like purple. Prince is not going to like that. I remember that, and uh, yeah, we... Uh, there was some other, yeah, there was a lot of, God, I can't think of the names of all the bands, you know, but there was a whole bunch of bands that came up. One of them was in the Purple Rain movie for about five seconds. Uh, I can't think of their name, but uh, yeah, we made guitars, sometimes yeah. using uh, parts, you know, uh, like Warmoth parts, except the Warmoth, there was a different company, Boogie Bodies was the one that we got the stuff from, you know, modified them and, and you know, made Used them a lot too, you know. Didn't make everything from scratch. So you mentioned London. Yeah, everything. yeah. So that tell us about how that came about, that that sort of detour that you did in, in your time in London. Well, that was uh I first went over in eighty one. So you know, I quit the new coupe for a bit, went over there, and I love Europe. And the store owner had a friend, uh, there was a guy named Doug Chandler, and he had Chandler guitars. They were uh, by Kew Gardens yeah. in Richmond. Richmond Way, yeah. And they, they were a major store later on. They, they introduced Sylvano Amps, they introduced PRS, they were distributors too. And he arranged for me to go over and be the guitar repairman at Chandler's. And uh, boy, I, it, I was... To me, that was a big deal. I go into a, some place where I'm going to live for a while, work for people I never met, know, not knowing if they're going to be nice, you know. And uh, But I did it, and they were nice. And, um, you know, I, I was there altogether about a, about a year. And it, it was fun. I loved it, you know. It was yeah. the early 80s. It was kind of an interesting time because you still had bands from the 60s where the guys weren't even quite 40 years old. And and then you had the, the, the punk scene, whatever, with the uh, Mohawks. Yeah. And then you had uh, kind of the waning er days of the original success of like ELP and Yes and all that. And every, it was all kind of happening at the same time, you know. But they, all these people, they were kind of kept to themselves. I remember once I went to some pub and the guy said, well, you know, you're welcome here, here. This is really not your kind of place. You know, I remember thinking, I looked around and I went, yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> but it was 
was a, it was a, we are a funny yeah, little yeah. island. Yeah. Yeah, it was a scene. I liked the store. It was, although they had very few tools. I remember I got there and I thought there'd be a nice shop. And I said, well, get out. Can I see your tools? And they got a, I got a big plastic bin out. <laughs> and I said, well, it's time for us to go to the tool store. So we went to Kingston and I didn't know what a spanner was, you know, I thought, what the hell is that? And so it was, it was tough, you know, at first I, boy, it, uh, you know, but it, it was an, I'm glad I did it. You know, it was an adventure. Yeah. Um, and was that when you made the pilgrimage to Liverpool during that year? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the owner's brother worked there, younger brother, Charlie Chandler. He still has a store in, um, it's, uh, what is that? It's, it's called Charlie Chandler's Guitar Experience. He's still doing that. Okay. It's over um, across the bridge from K Kingston. Uh, it's, it's in Hampton Wick. Okay. Yeah. 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 So he's still there. I talked to him, you know, and. Uh, Chandler guitars is no more, but uh, he's still doing it. Yeah. So, and Dave, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask in that year that you were there. I mean, I've, I've seen uh, you reference a, a few people in on your your work shed. Is that where you meet people like Randy Rhodes during that era? Beat me to it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It was a little shop you know but everybody came to all the biggest stars uh greg lake uh randy rhodes uh i don't know if you know who jeff whitehorn is he played with all kinds of people uh snowy white from thin lizzy did stuff for uh, scott gorham and uh they uh, what was the the main guy that sang in the thin lizzy did work for him uh, met Dick Taylor from the Pretty Things, who had started the Rolling Stones, and then quit to go back to school. Probably the only time that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> and uh, oh, every day uh, you'd meet. Uh, I got to got to know uh, Mitch Mitchell, the drum Hendrix drummer, because wow. he added some guitars. He brought him in. You know, I got to know him. And uh, what was your yeah, Randy uh, was with. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say he was with uh, Ozzy. And I, I didn't follow that. I, my, my, my favorite, I'll just regress for one second. My favorite guy of all those as a player was, was uh, Gary Moore. I was a big fan yeah. of his playing and he came in a lot. And I, I put his first Floyd Rose on. I worked on the Peter Green, Les Paul. I went to his shows, you know, we kind of became friends, you know, and Wow. And uh, but yeah, one day Randy came in and we kind of knew who he was, but um, we heard he was good. And he brought in the uh, the polka dot V and the first white uh, roads, you know. And um, I remember it was funny. One of them was kind of odd because you think of a, a metal guitar having a thin neck and big frets, but one of them had a thick neck and little frets. I think it was the V, you know. And uh, so I did some stuff to them and uh, he was very quiet, serious. He seemed like a guy that was, didn't seem like a rock star. He seemed like a, like a player that had an opportunity for a big gig, which is, I think is what he was, you know? Yeah. And uh, did stuff for him. Yeah, I think he was in a couple times, mm. you know? I remember he, he seemed to be happy with how it went. Uh, 
there there wasn't a lot of good guitar repair that I could see in London because on my days off I go down to a Denmark Street, you know, look around, yeah. and um, there was Andy's Guitars. That was the only big shop I could find on Denmark Street. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but um, I, no, you know, it it seemed. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just uh, going to say. I mean, I'm I'm familiar it, with Denmark know, Street, but obviously uh not being a guitarist i don't know where the horns are i play a little piano and i i know the piano places down that oh, way okay. did you get to jam with those guys like gary moore would he you know plug in do you get to have a little play along with him well he he actually at one point said i'm gonna invite you over to a jam someday but uh the thought of that it was kind of like a muhammad ali said i'd like to you have boxing with you i had the whole idea kind of made me nervous he he would come into the store and uh, it was a small store and he would, there was a Marshall stack. He would turn it all the way up and play, <laughs> but it wasn't just loud. There was, uh, he was a moody guy. Uh, you know, he, he had some bad times, you know, his face was all cut up, you know, from a terrible incident and he was, he was troubled and all that seemed to come out when he played. It wasn't just loud or, yeah, he didn't use an awful lot of overdrive compared to some guys. He was just menacing. When when you were around him playing like that, it was like you were like the scene of an accident or something. I don't know how to put it. It was it was something there that was had a, a real um, uh, an edge to it that uh, a lot of other players didn't have. You know, that come out when he played. You know, yeah. it was. I, I can just see him now and thinking, oh, you know, well, this, is, this guy's intense. You know. Yeah, well, I think so, yeah. what we know now it's it's quite apt, isn't it? That uh, that you've picked up on that. Can I ask you about Randy a little bit more? Because obviously he was just a kid, sure. you know. I mean, he was he was always young, right up. So, I mean, I, I think he'd been given lessons, hadn't he? He'd, he'd been teaching people, so he was a very very classically trained. His mom had you know, a music school. Of, yeah, and he taught there. So. Yeah, his mom had a, had a school. Yeah, I have a friend that got to know her, actually. I have a mm -hmm. friend that's a Randy Rhodes uh, nut. He's gone to where the bus incident happened. He's visited. He got to, got to know Randy's brother and his mother and all that. Yeah, he, you know, we didn't interact a lot. Uh, I remember he was very small, you know, uh, kind of Angus Young size. And uh, and he was seemed very serious and uh you know it was very intent on just having his guitars fixed um i guess you could kind of say he was a little bit like prince and that there wasn't a lot of small talk and just kind of schmaltzing around it was you know i i need this done and uh, he wasn't rude or anything but it was like you know this is i gotta have this done and you know and, and that was kind of the end of it you know some people like greg lake he was a big jolly kind of goofy fun guy you know mm. <laughs> he was different i remember I, I thought before he came in that maybe he would be a little pretentious you know uh, i don't know why i thought that maybe because you know their music was you know kind of art rock or progressive and he was just like a big uh fun guy that you meet in the bar I remember he had a big rolex on and he was all excited he was going to get a kaler bass tremolo on and he was kind of uh, pantomiming how he was going to use it and all that. And then he played some nice acoustic stuff. He had nice voicings when he played acoustic guitar and he played some of that for me, you know. And so I, I really enjoyed working with him. 
So I, I just want to ask a question, uh, Dave. Maybe you can relate to this as a guitar player and musician playing bands. Uh, before we get going, I, I know what's coming next for uh, our big topic. <laughs> but um, uh, I had a point. And I just wonder if you experienced this, like playing in bands, the grind of playing on weekends or whatever, the late nights. For me personally, I'd get up early to run a music store, I'd give guitar lessons every other night of the week. Um, I I didn't I got to a point I didn't like the traveling. I didn't like a, a lot of the BS and the politics that goes on within bands. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So I just got to a point for me. I'm like, hey, I like teaching guitar. I'm good at it. I got a lot of students. Why leave the house? Did you kind of have a moment like that where you thought, why am I doing this when I can just do <laughs> guitar repairs and just have my own little piece, you know? Well, uh, when I, in my 20s, in the 70s and early 80s, it, it wasn't so much like that. We, I never had to leave town to play. Did the same club once for a year and a half. Played songs with three other guys. We were about as tight as the Beatles were. We got to play Steely Dan and Eagles. There was no uh, no Abba or Proud Mary in there, you know. It it was it was just fantastic. But then later on, I, I did jobbing gigs and stuff. The things you have to do to keep playing as a musician musician playing little crappy bars in the middle of nowhere or, or doing all kinds of weddings and stuff, you know, uh, playing stuff you would never really want to play. That's when. I, I thought yeah, this this is no fun anymore, you know. Yeah. So so, so was... it came for me later, you know. Okay. So that point did happen to you as well. Oh and yeah. What happens to a lot of us? So. Oh yeah. Later on, it, it happened big time. I had some terrible gigs with drunken players and petty infighting uh, adults acting like spoiled little kids and. Mm -hmm having stupid conversations with uh, drunken people and you name it, you know, yeah, I, so, I, but it, for a while it was, was great, you know, yeah, I often when say, you're a young guy, you get to, you, as I was going to say, you get to hang out with your friends. You're not, you don't have to wonder what you're going to do with your weekend. You're going to be the, kind of the yeah. star of the show. You, you meet, uh, it's easy to meet ladies, you know, it was, it was, it was fantastic for a while, you know, I think we all have thousands of those like stories of, um, of just the craziness and all the different things you experience. And I mean, this YouTube channel is still young. I got thousands of stories that'll come out sooner or later. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask what sort of brought your time in London to an end and then you returned to, uh, to Minneapolis. Well, you know, I, I came, they wanted me to stay and, and be full-time and, and come back and, and live there permanently. And uh, I got back to Minneapolis and uh, I thought, well, yeah, I'll, I'll pack up my stuff. But I got back here and I thought, oh, England was great, but this is really my home. You know, I don't think I can do this. You know, it, it's saw my family and all my friends again. And and then that, it's funny how it all everything works out, you know, with with Prince. If I had stayed there, I wouldn't have been able to make the guitar. From what I heard, he had a, a different guy that was going to make it, and then they had a falling out, so that uh, made him okay. look for somebody else. Uh, Who was that? You know, it all came together. What's that? Who was the other guy? Uh, the guy's name was Chuck Orr. He uh, okay. made guitars for Prince early on. In fact, Prince thanked him on the back of the first album. Yeah. And uh, you'll, 
is a, a lot of Prince fans will, you can see uh, one of his Chuck Orr guitars that Prince played, you know, and, but uh, I guess they had a falling out. In fact, when I made the guitar, it was, I had to do it really quick, but because, because, because of this falling out, which I think is true, I think that story is true, uh, the, uh, the movie had already been started. You know? Yeah, I wanted to ask you, I did want to ask because I think the production dates for Purple Rain were the 1st of November to about the 15th or 16th of December, and then it was all the First Avenue shots. So when did yeah. they come to you? When did, or did he come, did he come to you directly knowing you? No, he came to the store. When I got back from London, I thought, well, I'm going to go back. They, they, they had let me take my job back there. And I walked in and it seemed to me I was only back a few days. I think it was the end of October. Hmm. And uh, one day I walked in and I saw Prince up at the counter talking to one of the owners. And then they went into the back office and then I went downstairs and got to work. And then the owner come down and said, the Prince has a project. He wants a guitar made. Prince is going to make a movie. And I remember thinking, he's going to do what? <laughs> Usually you were uh, further into your career. I mean, his career, you know, it was going pretty well. But like Elvis and all that, they waited till usually until they were a real pretty big star. Yeah. But uh, Prince had the uh, drive and the resolve to do it at that point. And, uh, and then uh, I'd never made a guitar. I'd only fixed them. And I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? And I, I thought, well, if I say no, you know, uh, I'll regret it forever, maybe. And if I'll, so I'm going to try. If I fail, they, uh, they won't kill me. They'll have to go out and get a white Stratocaster instead. But um, I thought, you know, it's amazing what you can do. Uh, you know, a lot of times if you're put on the spot, you know, if, if life throws you th opportunities that you maybe oh, aren't quite prepared for, uh, but you got probably can at least you could try to pull off. It's often amazing what you can do, you know, like, uh, so they just had me do that all the time. There was another guy there that painted the first ones, but they had him do all the repairs and I did all the woodwork and I did it every six days a week, I think for a month, you know. Just, so I think the whole thing was about a month, as I remember. Yeah, I appreciate I'm also taking you back like half. 40 years, you know, so I'm going to ask you very specific questions. Don't worry if, uh, you know, the memory isn't isn't right there. When he came I didn't in, do a lot of drugs or drinking. I got a pretty good memory. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So is it Jeff Hill, who was the, the owner of, yeah. of Newt? Well, so, there were two of them. OK. Was it Jeff, Jeff that Hill, Prince spoke to was, that day? Yeah. Yeah, he was more of the rock and roll guy that um, enjoyed playing and, and hanging out. And the other owner was really more of a businessman. He, he wasn't as involved in uh, the hanging out with musicians and all that. Yeah, Prince and yep. him uh, and Jeff, they, they seemed to get along real well. Yeah, he's the one. He's not okay. with us anymore. Right. And do you think when Prince was asking about this guitar being made, Jeff said, yes, you know, because why would you ever say no? You'd at least give it a go. Did Prince know that you would be the person who was going to be tasked with making that guitar? 
Well, I'm not sure. I mean, he knew later that I did it because in the Guitar Player magazine in 2000, they asked him who made his guitar and he, and he mentioned me. Um, he saw me around, you know, after I made it uh, and the movie was a success. Uh, Prince, he rented out all the major venues in town, uh, three of them, for each of them for a whole week. It must have cost him a fortune and he would use them as practice facilities. And I went to all the rehearsals and I would see him. And uh, so I was around a lot, you know, uh, so, yeah. but at that time, I'm not so sure if he, since he talked so little, a lot of times he didn't know what he knew, you know, because uh, he didn't say a yeah. lot, you know. Yeah, but did he recognize you from obviously the audition and, you know, the times that you'd interacted with him in the shop? He never acknowledged that, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. So I, I am curious, it's, is it what, three, four weeks that you had to get that guitar put together for him? Well, it was at least a month because it had to be painted too, you know, oh, and uh, okay. on that one, we used nitrate cellulose lacquer, which, you know, it don't, it don't cure fully uh, right away, you know, I mean, it looks dry to the yeah. touch, but it isn't, you know, and uh, I would say it was uh, four to five weeks somewhere in there, you know, okay. um, I remember they allowed me to bring it home and show my parents around Christmas, you know, so uh i would say it was a month month and a half you know um so yeah, is that before was... you handed it over for filming yeah yeah it was okay. yeah can i ask a question I, I mean this honestly with the greatest of respect it was that a, a proper job of creating a guitar that you you created something that was meant to be played or were you creating a prop for a movie and maybe it wasn't designed to play that great. Well, I made it play as good, it played good. You know, my skills weren't as good as they are now and I was rushed, but yeah, it played and you know, it, it wasn't just a prop. I thought of it mostly that that is its main purpose. You know, it was a, a, a movie kind of a prop, but he, I, I made it play as good as I could. It did mm -hmm. uh, a decent fret work, uh, set it up. You know, yeah, I made it play as good as I could, yeah, but, but it, you know, it, it really yeah. it served a purpose in the movie as part of the storyline and all that, you know, so. And in terms of, yeah. of what they asked, he gave you this, the sardonic space and said, I, I, you know, I need you to base it off of this design wise. Is, yeah. Am I recollecting that right? Yeah, all the requests were given to Jeff Hill and he told me, he said, uh, it's uh, gonna have this general shape. It's gonna be white. He wants it white. He wants gold hardware. And he specified EMG pickups. He already knew that he liked them for some reason. Yeah. And he, and he wanted spades on the fingerboard. People think those are dots, but they're little spades. And that was it. And uh, Normally, you make a custom guitar, you're gonna you want to ask the guy, well, how big should the neck be? Well, how big should the frets be? Uh, and uh, there was no way I, I try and get a hold of the uh, oh, the guitar tech, to, and he'd say, Well, I'll ask Prince, and but he never got back. So I thought, Well, I'll make it so I like it, that's all I can do, you know. I, I it turned think, out uh, that he uh, our taste was similar for one month, and that's your first guitar. That's that's blows my mind, like. 
Uh, were you yeah. feeling a lot of pressure as the days were clicking in doing that? I feel, remember feeling mostly exhilarated. You know, I was mm. working so hard and so zoned in on what I was doing. It, uh, it seemed exciting and exhilarating. No, I get, uh, I don't think so, I felt a whole lot of pressure. I just was happy to be doing it, you know? Yeah. A question that's just come to me, if, if you did have a falling out with, with Chuck or which sounds more than possible, and then you guys get quite a late request to create the guitar were there any other shops that you might have gone to to ask them to put a guitar together just so that all of his eggs perhaps weren't in one basket yeah there was a store called hoffman guitars they were going by that time they could have done it uh, have you ever heard that's anything probably about it sorry through the grape have you ever heard anything through the grapevine that anybody else was approached as a backup or no no a prince had been that was a story he liked to come to you know to to jam and to you know and buy stuff and uh i worked on his uh, l5s you know so it that was kind of his place to go to you know mm. so i think he just thought well i'll go to new Cape. i know them and that's what we'll do you know yeah dave um, well you I knocked want... it out the park Fantastic. oh yeah my god um <laughs> Dave, I wanted to ask you on the topic of the EMG pickups. So uh, with this channel, as I started doing, you know, learning about Prince, doing some reaction videos, talking with people about it, and I started realizing, I'm like, he's using EMG pickups, uh, uh, the single coil and the neck and, and the humbucker and the bridge. And, I, you know, being a hard rock guy is my background. I thought, I thought that was a little interesting that he, those were his choice of pickups. Did, at that time, did it, were EMG recognized as more as a, a metal hard rock? uh brand of pickups was it a little lot were you kind of going emg pickups oh okay <laughs> no they didn't get that reputation with like people with zach wild using them and all that that yeah. kind of developed much later gotcha uh they were they were just another brand uh, i mean they were set apart by the fact that they were active mm -hmm. um they uh you know and they're very clean and very quiet they didn't seem to pay much as much attention to what they were in as some other brands of guitars as pickups were, you know what I mean? They, mm -hmm. they seemed to uh, not, uh, they weren't like a vintage pickup. They were very different than that, but they yeah. would be very, they would cut through and they were so quiet, you know, and uh, I guess that's probably what he liked. They do the funky rhythm pretty well, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll just uh, go over quickly to, uh, to another Patreon question. It's from Wanda Manning. She's part of our great Patreon community. Um, so she asked the question. Uh, I think we've covered it, but just to clarify again, who came up with the idea for the cloud guitar? It was already presented because there was a bass made previously in that shape, was it not? Yeah, by a guy named, uh, his, his last, name, last name was Levin. Mm. He was a repairman at a store in New York City um i can't quite i know there's a the matthew the somewhere store. in that name isn't it was that matthew something the store or was it matthew levin the, uh, the no, um, i can't quite think of the name of the store it'll come to me in a second but he was a repairman there and the, the story i heard andrew simone seems to think that he got it in la but i'm pretty darn sure that isn't true because when i had worked on that base a few times before 
uh, I left to, to England even, and uh, I was told that Prince bought it in New York City, and that all makes sense because that's where the store was, and that's where the repairman was. And I've had emails with him. It looks as though he made it for himself and uh, then decided it wasn't really his kind of thing and put it up for consignment in the store. And Prince went to New York City before he became famous. The way I heard it was that he was trying to see if he could kind of scare up a recording contract on his own, you know, and uh, it didn't happen, but he bought that uh, bass. Um, so uh, are you familiar with Andrea? Right I'm sure you're, you're familiar with Andrea Swenson, uh, formerly of the, the current. Oh, yeah, she's been to my shop. Yeah. 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 yeah so she Andrea. She did. Yeah. She yeah. seems to think that uh, the, the base somehow makes its way from New York to Oakland near the record plant where Prince did his first album. And that's perhaps where he bought it. And that's that sort of confirms Andre's memory, but nobody can really I guess then say I how does the base uh, go. Yeah, yeah. I guess I can't. Uh, you know, I wasn't there. I don't have a, a good opinion on that, really. Yeah, um, no, it's it's one I, of those yeah, Prince myths, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. The guy's name was Levin. Um, I can't think of the store. It's still there, uh, but I can't. I, the name is eluding me. It's still in. Uh, the Manhattan area. Yeah. So, uh, can you can you speak to? Obviously, you've you've been given this sort of quite basic spec from Prince. You know, it has to be an EMG gold, based on the sardonic space. Is it a standard size guitar? Because obviously, he's quite a diminutive guy, and that guitar doesn't look large on it. So, in terms of sizing, where does it fit compared well, to other? It has excuse me, it has the scale length, uh, the neck length of a uh, Gibson, shorter than a Fender. It's a 24 and three-fourths. And uh, yeah, I sized it down a little bit. Uh, you know, the body is pretty similar. Um, the cutaway is in a little different place. Uh, you know, all the location of the parts is totally different on the top. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it, yeah, it's not real big. No, in fact, I had to use very small knobs on it. I used the smaller of the two knobs that they put on a Fender Jazz Bass because it was just very crowded in the area where you could put stuff. There's not a lot of body to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And is there anything that you did then that you wish you hadn't because you've had to recreate them over, you know, 30, 40 years? No, I think it works pretty well for what it is, you know, and what I had to do uh, where the uh, access panels, uh, you know, the routes on the back or where they should be. Um, no, the biggest problem with reproducing them then has, I remember when, you know, I, I would make one off and on over the years, but then after Prince died, there was a, a tremendous demand. I had the phone ring the next day, it rang, I think, 23 times, you know. And I thought, well, I gotta, I gotta ramp this up a little bit. I got demand, and I thought, boy, you know, after almost four years, can I get the stuff anymore? Because people demanded yeah. that they be just exactly the same, mm -hmm. you know. Otherwise, you could get a copy somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, they still made the maple trees. I had that under control, but uh, the bridges—they hadn't made them for years. 
I had to, first I had to find all the new old stock ones left at distributors. Then I, now I have people in Tokyo and different European cities where they go to stores looking for ones that were never sold. I had a guy in Ireland find some, a guy in Tokyo. The EMG pickups, they changed their logo. So I, I got them to make a special run to get out the old stamper, you know. The tuners changed, and that uh, that was my biggest luck. I went on Reverb, and there was a guy who said, 20 boxes of Scheller tuners stored for 20 years, brand new. I bought them all. They were 5,000 bucks, about the, every, every damn one of wow. them. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So uh, all that stuff, uh, you know, so I can still make them just exactly like it was, you know. Yeah. So, but it's been a lot of trouble. And yeah. now with the supply chain crisis, different mm. things. They can't get the Baltic birch from Russia. So it's, you know, if all I had to do is make the guitar, about half my work would be gone, but I have to deal with all the stuff, you know, the, the cases and the paint and all the materials, you know. Well, I think I, I speak on behalf of all Prince fans that if there's anyone that you need in any of the countries worldwide, reach out, just put the word out. If you need us to walk, you know, into a shop and... Oh. And, and video call yeah, you absolutely. and see if it's the right part. We, we'll help. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's it's uh, the Shaller 457 bridge is what it is. It's gold. The 455 was chrome and I can't have them replated, you know, but uh, I got a fairly good supply. I spent a lot of time just, you know, getting as many as I could because I want to plan ahead. I'd like to do this for a while yet. You know, I went to all that trouble to defend my trademark and now I'd like to make, oh, yeah. keep making them, you know. You know, on that Absolutely. note, on that note, Dave, if, if, if I may ask, um, for those of us in the guitar nose circles, uh, if I was to ever purchase a cloud guitar, I would want to make sure it's one of the ones that you made. Um, every company has problems with knockoffs around the world. Uh, for people that might not be quite as much in the guitar uh, no circle, what would be some simple things that they could look for to say, no, this is this Dave made this one, as opposed to some of the stuff that's out there? Well, yeah, I don't think many of the mine are out in the public, but uh, the first thing would be that horn on that, uh, that pointy part of the headstock, that horn. Yeah. On most of the copies, it's shorter. In fact, I read that Prince, when he had the Schechter ones made, he did that ahead specifically so he could see that they weren't like the originals. So that's the first thing. Number two is on mine, uh, and I am going to do a, a Facebook post on this at some point. The, the, the neck pickup was mounted from behind, so you don't see the tabs, the mounting tabs on the EMGSA. It was done from behind. And uh, you just see a, a hole that they come through with the two screws. Most of the other ones do it from the front, okay. which is a lot easier to do. And uh, number three would be the volume control. On most of the other ones, its position is right across from the center of the humbucking pickup ring. On mine, it's below that a bit. It's off center. Okay. And uh, that would be the main things, you know. So everybody From out the there, that either the yeah, I have people all the time send me photos and yeah, yeah. There, there was uh, a guy Andy Beach. Did you ever hear of Andy Beach? He's a I guitar builder on the. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's in the, I think the Pacific Northwest. He made a lot of Prince had he make a whole bunch of them later. Yeah. Okay. After he kind of worn out the ones that I did, and uh, his yeah. are quite accurate. Uh, but all, almost all the other ones, and you you get kind of a you can kind of see the work of your own hand, you know, it, yeah. it, especially in the carving. You know, I um, I have some photos of the originals. And, uh, you know, I look at them once in a while and to make sure that I'm still doing it the same way. You know, I, I go to a lot of trouble to make sure that they don't start to veer off yeah. from the way they should be. And, but it just seems like that's how I still want to do it. You know, it's not that hard. To just mm -hmm. my uh, eye for a, a curve and, a, and the way things should look, it's, it's, it's kind of how I do it, you know, and it's, so it's not that hard to uh, maintain that, you know. Um, what, what the, I made a fourth one. Here's a th something that very few people know. Okay. I made three for Prince, the original, and then two more for Turing. And then Warner Brothers had me make one that they gave away in a contest in the UK in, I think, uh, 84 or 85. And the owner of that one sent me a whole bunch of photos. He still has it. He doesn't want anybody to know who he is, though. And they were very detailed. And I looked at them. And I thought, geez, yeah, that's, that's, I still got it the same, you know. But, so I got a lot of trouble to make it. Because I want to make it, number one, as accurate as can be. And number two, play good and have really good uh, detail as though it was like a PRS or something, you know. Yeah. Of that quality. Are you working so, on? Yeah, I work hard at that. Are you working on any of them at the moment for, for clients? Oh, yeah, I have a, a several in production, yeah. I've gotten behind. Uh, I spent so much time with my lawyers defending my case, you know, mm. so many hours researching documents and getting people to sign statements that I'm quite behind on them, you know. So, oh, yeah, I got lots of orders. I work on them every day, you know. Um, well, uh, I think you know, we have a mutual friend, Ellie, who's one of Brian's patrons. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think Ellie. he'd like to join the queue at some point if you could offer him a, a nice discount. But oh. once you've cleared <laughs> your backlog. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the build time is around, though, 10 months to 10 to 12 months, you know, because mm. they're all done to, to, you know, to order, you know, I don't make uh, someday I'd like to make one to hang up in my showroom, you know, but that's, uh, that's uh, not going to happen anytime soon. How many can you they're, do they're very, concurrently? Sorry. Can you do well, several probably, concurrently? Uh, about about uh, one a month at the most, maybe five, mm -hmm. six weeks, somewhere in there. They're very labor intensive. I mean, uh, geez, I bet I could make 10 telecasters by the time I make one of those things. They got all kinds of bevels. They got curves yeah they have that carved area i do that with little hand chisels you know and and uh you know and i i want to do it i had a guy tell me with a, that you could take a cnc machine you know if you know what those are computer controlled routers he said dave okay. i could i could carve the whole thing for you and you all you have to do is put it together and i said no i I'd rather suffer and not be a liar and, and be able to say that i carved the damn thing you know yeah Absolutely. But it's it's it's, yeah. it's hard work, you know. You got all kinds of noisy tools on. You got earplugs in and goggles on. It, it's it's not, you know, it's it's kind of hard work at times, but it's rewarding, you know. Yeah. Um, Dave, so, 
I want I want to ask uh, for Prince fans. I I, I want to take this opportunity and ask. Uh, one of the things that amazed me as I learned more and more about him is all the instruments that he could play, as you had referred to earlier. I have to ask, and I'm not trying to be funny, but I, I, I'm in, around the store when he would come in. Did you ever witness him playing an instrument that might surprise people, like the glockenspiel or uh, the theremin or something? Did you ever see something where you're just like, "Wow, I saw Prince play that," you know? Uh, unfortunately, the store wasn't that well equipped with uh, stuff to buy. <laughs> yeah. It was mostly guitars and some keyboards and a little bit of drums. Mm. But, um, you know, he was a hard worker. He could practice all day with a band and then go home and play drums by himself till the sun come up. That's all he wanted to do. Yeah. His uh, roadie he said when they would tour Europe and stuff, Prince would kind of make fun of the other ones for wanting to go out and see the sights. He would just stay in his hotel room and, and want to write tunes. Mm -hmm. yeah. He just wanted, he said uh, he could lay out several guitars at Paisley Park in the early evening and Prince would record all night. He'd come back the next day and there'd be like three finished songs where he played all the parts on them. You know? Wow. Yeah. They could hardly find an engineer that, that for a long that could stand up to his stamina, you know, and he would just keep going, you know. So he had the yeah. tremendous talent and the tremendous work ethic, you know. He had he had both, you know. Do you think we'll yeah. ever do you think we'll ever see anyone like him again? No, you know, what really stands apart is that there were no missing pieces. In other words, he could play all the instruments. He could sing, he could write the songs, he could arrange them, he could produce himself, he could create a look, he could create a controversy about himself, he could co-create costumes, and mostly he could run and be his own manager. He could dance. I mean, who, who nobody can do all that stuff. Yeah. There's nobody else that, that has no missing parts. You know, there's people that love him for his music. There's other people that just love him as a, like a style icon, you know, for how he looked in his clothes, you know. Yeah. He appeals to all kinds of people at once. Uh, to get all that in one more other person, I can't think of anybody that, I don't know if you guys can, I can't think of anybody else that doesn't have, that has all those pieces in place. You know, no, I, I think talent-wise, there are people who, can, can touch aspects of it but I think you put it brilliantly there you know there's no missing jigsaw puzzle you know piece I think that you can't say about anybody else you know I, I yeah, spent yeah I spent time trying to uh, think about that like who else could compare to Prince and uh, you know the only person that in my head I could come up with was a fellow by the name of it's not it's still it's not he can't do all of what Prince did but there's a fellow in a band, Canadian famous band called Triumph named Rick Emmett. He could really sing and he was a virtuoso guitar player. Don't think he, he could oh, do yeah. all the other stuff Prince could do, but he's the only other person that kind of comes to mind. Maybe like, I'm sure there's others, but I don't think anyone will be able to be the package that Prince was. Well, yeah, he was such an entertainer too. I mean, uh, there's videos where he's dancing and just being a cool, you know, he was small, but he was so well proportioned. He just looked cool you know and, he, and then he had a sense of mystery about him he wasn't just a regular yeah. guy he was he was he had almost like David Bowie where he's just his personality and his persona is very powerful uh independent of what he does with it you know um, yeah. 
yeah, I can't think of, a, I suppose you could say Paul McCartney does some of that. He can write and sing and play instruments, but he don't dance and he's, he's kind of a regular bloke in some ways. And the Prince was, it was something mysterious about him and kind of exotic, you know, you know what I mean? He was, yeah. There was something there that, like when I see the impersonators, there's a guy in town who's real good at it, but nobody uh, has, has that mystery, mysterious charm about him. You know, that it's, Dave, it's a special thing. You know. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that point in time where it was kind of like, as you can see, as time went on, Prince carried a lot of weight with him. Where, like, do you remember the the what I'm trying to say is, do you remember the point in time where he'd come into the store and you're like, oh, he's just this kid in town and he plays. The point where it's like. It's him. <laughs> That's the man, you know. Do you remember that kind of time frame when that kind of shift happened? Well, you know, I was only at the store till '85, but yeah. as he got bigger, he did. He appeared less. He didn't come in much anymore, you know. Mm. You, the the crew would come in, you know, and I've done stuff, work for him, uh, you know, almost right up to the end. I worked on those box guitars that he had at the end. Him and Don ahead. I worked on I. About 15 years ago, I repaired uh, the uh, the yellow uh, Horner Telly. You know, it had damage. Yeah. But you know, there were it would be uh, the staff would come out. You know, and uh, so I can't say that um, I ever saw him much after I left. You know. It, uh, so I'm I'm just going to ditch my timeline concept because you you've just said a couple of things there that I think are super important. So. The Vox guitar that sort of appeared towards the end, the, the hollow body. Yeah. Do you have any sort of take on that? Like, why would he move to a, a hollow body? Yeah. Well, I remember what I did to it. It had a broken neck. I fixed it. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if you don't have something around for a while, you mostly just think about the problem. I remember thinking it was a, a quality uh, guitar. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure, you know, he liked the guitars to perform, but he also thought of the guitars as how is it going to look on stage or on, on a video? You know, he wouldn't be a guy that like a guitar nerd where he'd sit around and clean them and stuff, you know, and uh, he just wanted him to use. Uh, he had this white bass. What was it? A Warwick, I think he had some yeah. purple uh, paint on it. They were, they, they, one day he said, from what I heard, he said, I want some purple on there. And they took it out and started spraying it outside the staff, just the amateurs. And before it was dry, he said, I want to use it right now. I need that bass. And so he it was smelly and he just took it in and played it. It was, they were all tools either for music or for the look. Yeah. You know, uh, he was very into color. You know, he would have outfits that were custom dyed. I know the lady yeah. that dyed all the cloth for his stuff, you know, and everything yeah. would match. And, you know, it, um, he saw the big picture as an entertainer and a musician. He saw the ultimate goal and uh, everything fit into serving that. And the guitars were part of that, you know. Absolutely. I mean, it was a multimedia extravaganza, wasn't it? It wasn't just a guy who's going to play guitar and sing. It was, how is it going to look? What's the color scheme? What if I were something which guitar matches with it? The the Vox Hollow yeah, like body. Dude, I can say that cream video, you know, where uh, yeah, 
it's a, that's a good example of that with the yellow one and, and how everything yep. else looks in the video and the girls dancing and the, the whole yep, thing, exactly. you know? Yeah. So to someone, who doesn't play, to someone who doesn't play guitar, that, that box hollow body, is it a much lighter guitar as the name would suggest? I don't remember that too much. I remember it was well made and I remember what I had to do to it. Um, okay. I remember Donna had one too. Um, yeah. It was a, it asked, was a real attempt to make a pro level guitar. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, from what I've heard that they're quite hard to get hold of now. And if any of them pop up on reverb or any of these sites that they're, they're quickly snapped up by Prince aficionados. But I, I kind of was asking from the point of view that obviously towards the end, I, I, I would say now looking back in hindsight that maybe his health wasn't the greatest. And I just wonder something like that Horner Magcat, which is such a heavy guitar. You know, I've got one of the replicas. I wonder if the hollow body was maybe just to compensate and take some of the weight off of him as, as a diminutive guy. It could be, you know, yeah, he looked thin towards the end. Somehow, though, I remember when uh, I found out he died, I, you know, he's, he's still, he didn't look real sick and he was still active, you know. Uh, I remember a store owner, a friend of mine called up and he said, one of your customers died. And I remember thinking, what old uh, coot bit the dust today, you know, and they said it was Prince and I was just like, I was speechless, you know. Mm. I mean, anybody can die, but I didn't see that coming, you know. It, uh, it wouldn't yeah. be like if they told you Keith Richards just died. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. So eventually, I would imagine we'll all the, live to see that, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was uh, it was a shock, you know. But um, yeah. I don't know uh, Prince. Uh, his taste in guitars—they had to perform, but like I said, they were part of an image. You know, he knew how to create <laughs> an aura about him uh, between. He wasn't. If he was just a musician and a singer, well, that's only part of what he was. You know, it, yeah. it's. I think it's easy to underestimate the uh, attention to the image, the uh, controversy in the early years, the kind of sexy thing. All that stuff uh, made him uh, a legend. You know, it all put that all yeah. together. That's what kind of puts him on, kind of on the top of it all. You know. So can I touch back on a couple of things that you mentioned then? You, you said you've done some work on the, the Honer, the you know fake telly. Um, what other guitars? And, and was this something that happened right the way through his career that you know the, the guitars would come to you for repairs? Yeah, he was hard on them. You know, he would throw them at the end of a show. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the guitar tech didn't catch it well you know then they, the necks would break all the original ones they had the necks broken many times in fact one of them was sold at auction one of the blue ones a couple of years ago and it was unplayable the neck was a guy paid a half a million bucks for a guitar to, with a broken neck you know you can't play it yeah have uh, you been contacted it, by uh, yeah, sorry to, to break sorry. in on you, but uh, there's a, a Dutch um, fan called Edgar Cruz and Edgar put together a, a history of the four clouds that you made to try and trace oh, them through the years. That. Yeah, I've heard of that. There's yeah. one missing, you know. Uh, one day after I made the three of them, Prince came into the store and Jeff Hill 
uh, got said to Prince, you know, how, how are they all working out? And, and he said, Prince whispered to me that he wished one of them had a smaller neck. So I, I brought it in and I made the neck narrower, I think maybe a lot. Yeah. And um, I don't know what happened to it, but uh, that one is missing. According to a friend of mine who was his tech, it was at Paisley Park until about 10 years ago. But what that name would that uh, be, the, the tech? Was that Takumi? Yeah, Takumi, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know him real well. And, he, and uh, that one is missing. The, the one, uh, there's one in the Smithsonian, that's one of them. That one that went for, I think, six, four, four to 600,000, that was one of them. But then yeah. the third one is not around. And I can always tell if they're the ones that I carve. Even the Andy Beach ones, they're, they're different enough mm -hmm. that I can tell whether I did it or not. It's just, I, I can recognize yeah. my work and the subtle details, you know. Yeah, so Edgar's research uh, brought up that the first guitar that you made, which I'd, I'd quite like to, to just ask you a couple of questions before I, I do about that one. Once you were done with that first original guitar, did you present it to Prince? Did someone from the production come and collect it? How did that handover work? I didn't present it. Yeah, they just come and got it. I don't remember much else about that. I, I had almost no interaction with, with Prince, really. He, even when I went to the rehearsals, he would keep to himself. He would stay in the dressing rooms a lot. At that point, he was uh, working out with uh, barbells and stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, and you had to get permission to talk to him, mostly, you know. Uh, okay. you, you couldn't just come up to him, you know. Uh, he was very shy, you know. You had to, once uh, Roger Sadowski, who made, uh, he made that ejaculating Telecaster that was used in concert. Yeah. He came all the way from New York to confer with Prince, and he was only able to get within about 20 feet of him and had to have the questions go back and forth with the roadie, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He was, yeah. yeah, maybe he was uh, autistic a bit. I don't know. But he, you know, often brilliant people are a little different, you know. But towards the yeah, end, I, you know, he could be on talk shows and he could be very uh, charming, you know, so he could do hmm. it later, you know. Uh, Susan, yeah. Susan Rogers had a lot of, you know, we had a great discussion with her uh, last month, but... Uh, you know, you hear different things about Prince and how he was to work with and everything, but did you ever get a phone call at 3.30 in the morning saying, hey, can you come down? I need this fixed now. Nothing like that? Well, I did have um, some of the staff come bring stuff and, and seem very agitated as though, boy, you know, uh, we got to do this right away, you know, uh, like I was given the orders from Prince, you know, we got to get this done. Yeah, he wanted stuff done immediately, yeah, which <laughs> can, so. be, uh, yeah. can be tough at times. Yeah. You know, if people don't understand what it takes to fix something like a broken neck, you got to you got to glue it back together, you got to repaint it, uh, you know, that don't happen overnight. So that that, that uh, at times was could be a little difficult, you know. Yeah. But, you know, so you just gotta... Go ahead. Sorry. We've got a terrible delay here, haven't we? <laughs> so yeah, uh, I was yeah. just going to say that Edgar's research into that that very first guitar um was so that guitar prince famously smashed it on stage in japan in 1986 uh, on the yeah, final gig of the revolution he, he actually broke two cloud guitars that that evening um but that one was later painted peach 
and mm. used during the sign of the times. It was painted yellow during the cream uh, era that you mentioned. And then in 1993, Prince mailed it to the Smithsonian and it's still there at the Smithsonian. So yeah. he's managed to trace that single guitar through all those yeah. years. Yeah, there so, is, I've seen pictures of all the paint because they didn't, uh, whoever repainted it didn't remove the uh, stuff underneath. They just put it on top usually, you know. Yeah, they x-rayed it, I think, uh, year before last and uh, they found seven layers of paint. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's not always the best way to do it, but I, you know, when you're in a hurry, uh, that's what you do sometimes. Mm -hmm. You use the preceding uh, layer as a base coat and you just keep going, you know? Yeah. Um, I know on my end, I have a couple more questions. Uh, again, uh, Dave, okay. we're very grateful for your time. Uh, was First Avenue your favorite venue to go out and either play or watch bands? What was your favorite venue during the time? Well, that was, yeah, that probably was, it was big. It used to be the bus depot in town. When I was a little kid there, I used to sit on the bench seats with my mom waiting for the bus. And uh, it became, it was a lovely venue. You know, it, it didn't, it didn't look quite as glamorous as inside as it, it did in the movie, <laughs> mm. but it was good. It had good sight lines, it had a nice stage. And it still does. It, it's it's laid yeah. out uh, through uh, some dumb luck of nature. Uh, you know, since it wasn't intended as a concert venue, it makes a pretty darn good one. You know, yeah, it yeah. was. I've yeah. seen all kinds of people there. You know, and uh, boy, you name it. Uh, I bet. Uh, my yeah, last good. My last question for you uh, on my end is: um, I know what it's like being around guitar all the time. Uh, when I I had a very busy music school. Um, I gigged all the time. I had to practice all the time. I had a guitar burnout for a number of years, but I'm, I, my question is, as someone who your world is guitar 24-7, do you ever have a time where you're like, I got, I, I got to step away from the guitar for a week or take a long weekend or has anything like that ever happened to you? Well, I, you know, I'm so busy I, working now. I don't play much, uh, although I hope to change that at some point. But I know I never get sick of working on guitars. I'm always trying to get better. Mm -hmm. When I look at a, a repair or building something, uh, I think of it, well, it's something to make money at and I'm going to make somebody happy. But I actually think more about here's an opportunity. Can I do something better? Can I get out a new tool or I, I invent some of my own tools? Can I use some new process? Uh, so I, it's always, it's like a game I'm playing. I lay in bed if I can't sleep and I try and come up with stuff. So it's, uh, no, I never get sick of it, no. No, I've never once, I have it at the shop is in my house. So my work commute is coming down the stairs and I've never once ever thought, oh, I gotta do this again, huh? Like, oh, I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, I, just lately, I come up with with refrets. I come up with a a new thing. Uh, you know, uh, when you do a refret on a unbound neck, you know, it's it's uh, to get the ends and, and get the sides of the board looking real good. It's uh, tricky because the original frets were put in before the paint went on. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing a refret, you got to file and you you know and you as careful as you can be. It sometimes it don't look quite right. So I got a new way of adding finish over the ends of the sides of the neck right where the tangs are you know so i and i, I feel that when you do something and it comes out i'm not going to be an egotist and everything's perfect but when you do something nice and you've done a physical 
thing, you know, you made something or fixed it and you can look at it and it looks nice. You just can't buy that satisfaction no. of, of, you know, I did this and I come out nice and I polished the frets and they're all even and everything and it feels good. Boy, that's just, you can't buy that, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. If only we were all lucky to uh, to be able to do something we love for a job, you know. Yeah, I'm lucky there. I had a girlfriend who worked in a cubicle all day, and boy, she just hated it. If we if we saw the building at a distance when we were on a Sunday, and she'd get all depressed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I uh, right away uh, as soon as I started taking the pickguard off my moles right when I was 15, I started thinking, boy, you know, I think I should be doing this, you know. And, it's worked out, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm pre I feel pretty lucky, and I actually I never take that for granted or stop being grateful that I can actually do something I like, you know, and people like how it comes out, you know. Yeah, that's no, fantastic. And while I've, I've still got a few minutes of your time, can I can I go full Prince nerd on you? In terms sure. of the the second and third uh, guitars that were were asked for, do you remember the sort of the, the gap because Obviously, the, the Purple Rain tour follows the movie coming out. Do you remember, uh, did you go to the premiere of, of any of the, the showings of Purple Rain? How did the, the call for the extra guitars come in? Well, uh, I remember when they wanted another one, I, I remember saying to myself, well, I guess he really liked it, huh? <laughs> you know? Because uh, just because I made it for a movie and they played it, that doesn't mean that uh, somebody would necessarily want to keep playing it on a long tour. And I remember thinking, well, that's good. And uh, it was in the summer of 84, um, sometime in the summer, and I made them both at the same time. I remember that. I worked on them both together. Were they rush and, jobs uh, as well? Yeah, I, I guess. I don't remember that they were the same. It wasn't like he said, well, this time I want something else different. I just uh, did the same thing, you know, and uh, did them. And that's how I do them. Now I do them because uh, uh, I got, I've got a lot of on back order. I, I do, uh, it's not like a factory, but I do the same section to each one. And there's something about doing the same thing over and over to a certain area, it just keeps getting easier, you know. I, when I, I have these uh, worksheets, sorry if I'm di di digressing a bit here. No, no, this is but great. I have these, great. Uh, I have these uh, forms that I use for each guitar I get with all the progress. And then on the back, I have uh, two maps of the front and the back. And I have the sections all with like four sections in the, on each one of them with letter names, you know, and I do all the one section on each, uh, like six at a time. And uh, it just somehow when you divide things up and you have this small goal, you know, uh, rather than just like, here's a whole guitar that's going to carve the whole thing. You, you're doing these parts. It, it just goes so much better. And it's psychologically, it's just, it's just easier to do, you know, that, that was a big advance. But yeah, I made the two and I got a, photo of me uh, that uh, the other store owner took in front. I got the Wendy guitar in one hand and I think number the first of the two I'm going down to uh, what was called the Minneapolis Auditorium 
and Prince yeah. was practicing there, and I took him in, you know, and got him my brand new uh, Honda and took him down, and uh, and I had, was I remember that day I got to meet uh, Sheila E. and I met Wendy. I remember I, I kind of started to have a crush on Wendy. Did I neither little did I know at that time I would have been totally out of luck. But, uh, <laughs> so it, uh, that was a good one. She, she was uh, quite the doll back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, uh, yeah, so I made them then, you know, it, you know, who would have seen that coming? You know, the Purple Rain movie, obviously the, 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 the movie company hoped it would make money, but I, I, mean, I don't think anybody there thought it would be that big a thing. I think they thought it would be kind of a B movie, you know, mm. it didn't have a how lot was of famous in, actors in it. Yeah. How was it in Minneapolis you, uh, when that, that movie sort of exploded? Well, it was a big deal. You know, like I said, all of a sudden, Prince, within weeks, took Minneapolis from the place that you could play uh, every night, but could never, there was no support. There was nobody in Minneapolis that could ever manage you or, or produce you or do anything big time. And all of a sudden, he turned that into the center. Uh, Entertainment Tonight, different uh, uh tabloid tv shows they would come and film me doing stuff it was it, it was uh it was a whole different place you know it was every day it was it was like la came to here you know it turned into la for a while yeah, yeah. and you, you mentioned that you went to his uh, birthday gig at first avenue which would be june of 85 yeah. were you already making the second and third guitars for the tour at that point or were did, were you there as a oh, fan? They, yeah, they were done in 84. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and by, by 85, I, th I think that's when I made the fourth one. And then sometime in that year, I'd have to look it up. I uh, left. I have a letter from the store owner when I left, a letter letter of recommendation and all that in there uh, so I could find the exact date. But um, yeah, I, after that, I, uh, I was treated well, but... Um, uh, uh, kind of, it would seem like I, I just wanted to move on and, and do stuff on my own. It, it kind of it was a, you know, the, the peak of the excitement was gone. And then I, you know, the, the store owners were nice to me, but I don't especially like having a boss, you know, so yeah. I, I wanted to go off on my own. I, uh, yeah. I do have one more question, Dave, if uh, that's okay. Uh, Susan Rogers told us a very funny story about Prince, so I have to ask you, were the ribs at Rudolph's really that good? <laughs> it's funny, I, I saw him there, you know, and, and most rock stars, they don't want to be seen, they, they kind of dress down. I saw him in there once wearing the same outfit he had on the, on the cover of one of his albums, like he'd just come from a photo shoot sitting all by himself. Wow. Yeah, it was good, and it was a very stylish place. I saw all kinds of people once I was in there. Boss Skaggs was sitting at the next table, you know, and yeah, it was good, and it was a, a hip, stylish place. It wasn't some old rib shack like down south. It was it was quite a place, and Prince lived near there for a while, too, you know, so yeah. it was, yeah, it was yeah. good, you know, and, and back then, uh, there weren't as many rib places. Now they're all over the place, you know, and mm. It was quite the institution, yeah. I, I had to, to ask. I had many, I had many coleslaws there. <laughs> <laughs>
So after you sort of went and, and set up on your own, did you bring some clientele with you? Or I suppose the question I'm really asking is, you know, how had your clientele changed? Because you're the guy who made this, this iconic guitar. How quickly did people track you down and say, okay, right, you're the guy I want to, I want to work with now? Well, it happened some, and then I, I kept doing stuff for Prince and some of the other people. Um, and then I also uh, would do a clinic at a guitar center and store here, and I would go in on Saturdays and do minor setups, right, you know, uh, for free, and then I would give out my cards. But uh, the internet really, is, is in many things, really have, was a huge boost. You know, there's all kinds of things that fans couldn't coalesce before the internet, you know. There's bands, you ever heard of Procol Harum? Do you know who they were? Oh yeah, Whiter Shade of Pale, yeah. They had White, you know, Whiter Shade of Pale and all that, and they, they mm. broke up, but then when the internet got bigger, there were so many fans and such popularity, they, they um, recon, you know, they put together a new version of it, and uh, it just went till recently, and, uh, Gary Brooker died, but it, it yeah. uh, it brought me, you know, the, the Prince, uh, the cloud guitar and all that, it was still well known, but it wasn't near as a big a deal again until uh, number one, the internet brought fans together. And, uh, and then when Prince died, uh, the two of those just turned it into a bigger thing than it by far than it had ever been, you know. Yeah. And in terms of uh, the relationship that you kept throughout the years, would you work so you mentioned a few people that you've, you'd make guitars and, and things for what about other minneapolis musicians like saint paul peterson you know uh would you were you are you the go-to guy for all of these guys still uh well some of them moved away um i still then uh, work for uh people in the replacements uh, a couple of those bands of that ilk. Um, see, I'm trying to think. Although I'd have to say a lot of my customers now are middle-aged men and such that have their, you know, they got good day jobs and they and they buy expensive stuff, you know, they're lawyers yeah. and doctors. Mm. So there's a lot of those, you know. Uh, I have Joey Molland is one of my customers from Badfinger. Okay, yeah, Badfinger, yeah. Yeah, Joey's lived in town here for about 30 years. I see him all the time. Okay. Uh, Brian Setzer lives here, you know, from okay. the Stray Cats. I, oh, yeah. Then all kinds of stuff to him, for him, not to him, <laughs> for his guitars. Uh, you know, so that's a couple of local celebrities. Although most people that come to live in Minnesota that are big celebrities, they come here because they married somebody from here. Okay. <laughs> And, uh, what about so someone like someone like Corey Wong, who's who's an up and coming, you know, Minneapolis guy? Have you done well, any work for him? A, yeah, I did have a recently had a uh, sent him an email because he had been out at Paisley Park and he thought he played one of Prince's Clouds, mm -hmm. and it 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 was one of the I could see in the photo was one of the Schechter ones, and he complained that it was it's, it was set up terribly. Yep. And I told him, well, that's not one of mine. And I told him I could, <laughs> I could, I could sell him one. And I never heard from him again, you know. Uh, did you ever hear the band uh, The Internet? Or a guy named no. Steve Lacey? 
He's uh, kind of a modern R&B guy. I'm making one for him. He okay. wanted his in uh, tennis ball green. And yeah. it goes in a bubblegum pink uh, velvet case. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so I got the, um, him. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, the, the band members that came through Prince's camp throughout all those years, a lot of guitarists, you know, Mike Scott, Kat Dyson, you know, uh, Donna Grantis towards the end, obviously you worked on her box, but there's a lot of bass players as well. Would you work on basses for people? I've worked on basses probably for the two most famous slapping basses of all, basses of all time, Lewis Johnson from the Brothers Johnson, who yeah, was... And Mr. Uh, Graham. Yeah, Larry Graham. Yeah, I've had them both in my shop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lewis Johnson said he played the bass line from Billy Jean for me. <laughs> wow. Because he was, uh, uh, what's his name? The producer. He was his favorite bass player. Uh, I okay. can't think of his name, uh, the producer. Um, but uh, yeah, I've had them. Uh, I've done work for Homer. He's in a new mint edition. Then. He, he oh, yeah. Yeah, I know Homer. Homer Odell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I worked on his stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Prince gave him one of the Korean made clouds. I worked on that. So I've had yeah. him over here. Um, and a lot of folk players, but not so many from back then. You know, they either they've gone and moved away or maybe they don't play anymore. You know, um, yeah. I don't see anybody from. Uh, the time anymore, you know, Jesse Johnson, I don't see yeah. him. A lot of them moved away, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I got still got some interesting guys. It's fun having Joey Mullen, because if you like the Beatles, I try not to overdo it, but it's like, it's the closest you could get to, to talking to a Beatle because he grew up in Liverpool. He did all the same things in the same places that they did just uh, a few years later with some le what less success, but he, yeah. I mean, he's, he's playing on My Sweet Lord. He's on the Imagine album. Uh, Yoko Ono got him some cigarettes one night. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a lot, he's a really nice guy, very humble, just happy to still be alive and to have some success. You know? I'll take he a look a, into him. the most Absolutely. humble, lovable guy. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because he's had terrible tragedies in your life. Is two of the guys in the band hung themselves, you know. Mm. But he uh, he's just happy he's still here, and he's just a lovely family man, you know. He's just a wonderful guy. Yeah. yeah. So I still have interesting clients of all kinds. Yes. So just to fill in a couple of blanks, obviously there's there's a thirty year career after Purple Rain, and Prince has used a lot of iconic guitars. I would argue yours is the most iconic. In terms of the other guitars that we've seen him with, especially after he changed his name to the cymbal and had the cymbal guitar, did you work on them? Were you asked to, to do repairs and, and maintenance on them? Well, in 2018, Paisley Park hired me to maintain, to go into the vault downstairs and work on all the stuff. I worked on the oh, original wow. cymbal. I worked on, there was a Telecaster, it was blue with flowers on it. I yeah. worked on that. Uh, I worked on uh, some Ibanez uh, arch top that he had. 
So uh, yeah, all of a sudden I was uh, working on all, on all of them. That went on for a few months. Uh, and then we had were a they... falling out. Okay. Uh, you, were you, they cataloged? <laughs> were they cataloged in any way, those guitars? Because I know he, he, obviously over the years, he picked up a few sort of celebrity guitars. I know he had one of Elvis Presley's. Were they signed in any way? No. Um, in fact, when I went down to that guitar room, I, I thought, well, uh, I thought I thought I would see more stuff than I did. You know, um, mm -hmm. some of it was kind of ordinary stuff too. You know, I saw some Ibanez kind of RG type uh, heavy metal guitar down there. I remember that. Yeah. It was, um, but I, I remember working on the uh, symbol made by um, uh, what's his name from uh, from uh, he's a German uh, guy that made the original one. Uh, can't think of his name right now, but uh, yeah, I worked on a few, you know. But uh, but they, they they would be very good. They were very good at cataloging all the stuff. I mean, they they had a, a section upstairs where they had all kinds of his items that they were all in boxes with serial numbers and everything going into a yeah. computer, you know. I, I worked yeah. a little bit on the uh, blue Stratocaster that was played at the Super Bowl when it rained. Yeah, yeah, wow. probably still uh, waterlogged. Well, they put it away wet and all the paint started oh. to come off. All they would have had to do was wipe it down real well because that kind of finish would have survived. It would have been just fine. It was all coming off just like you could touch it in the wrong place and chunks of the paint had come off, you know. So uh, I was going to be stabilizing that, although I, I didn't, I wasn't around. The, uh, we had a falling out before that occurred, but I saw that. And he had a, a few very exotic instruments too, uh, kind of fretted instruments from uh, oh, uh, Islamic world. I can't tell you what they were exactly, okay. you know. Like uh, ouds and, and yeah, that type of down there. there was, yeah, there was all kinds of straps and he had the, the, the drum heads from every every band he was ever in all lined up against the wall, you know. It was it was yeah. interesting. Did they estate ask you or tell you why they were asking you to, to come in and look at them? Because there was a, a worldwide exhibition, uh, probably around that time, where some of his costumes and and instruments went on the road i saw them in london um, and some of the instruments were out but i also noticed that quite a few of the mad cats that you see are actually the the knockoff ones you know the sort of the post lawsuit headstock gave gave them away oh, yeah where i believe prince actually had a couple of them which i would imagine is to hold one up and say this is the real one this is the rubbish one you know yeah, I worked on the original one, you know, that was, Takumi brought that in about 15 years ago. Uh, at Paisley Park, though, things weren't well maintained, you know, they, they, there was no attention to humidity or even the temperature wasn't that well controlled, the guitars and acoustics were all dried out and cracked. You know, things, even I know a guy that worked on some of the studio equipment, he said that that was, wasn't well maintained either towards the end, you know. So, um, yeah. so that's why I was uh, brought there to try and, uh, you know, they were going to put in humidifiers and all that. And uh, they had quite a plan, you know. Um, but I was there a couple months, I guess, you know. Uh, I won't go all into all the details, but uh, 
I, sure. after that, I, I wasn't there anymore. So just to, you know, sort of finesse these timelines, the, the guitars that you would work on, what sort of, who were the engineers that you would work on the guitar techs? Uh, so Takumi obviously had had a, a decent stint around the mid nineties for, you know, maybe 10 yeah, years. Was there, so. 90, uh, was there a night yeah. from 98 to 2008? Would you ever have um, to go to Paisley to, to pick things up or were, were they always coming to you? He mostly brought them here. I went out there once. And at that time, I think Prince was living in Canada with I think wife number two in the place. Yeah. There was nobody there. There was a receptionist and one maintenance man. There was nobody else around. The grass was about three feet tall. Nobody was cutting it. It was kind of abandoned for a while there. Um, his original guitar tech is dead. Like I, I tried to find him and I, I, I can't think of his name right now, but he's not around. And then th there would be different ones. You know, they, they came and go went really quick. You know, uh, if Prince didn't like them, you know, if they, if they screwed up once, usually they were gone, you know, but, you know, I'd have to say making the guitars started because I've had to, I had to change the, the companies to make the cases for them three times when you care about something and it isn't good, then you just want to move on to the next, you know, because yeah. you, you know, you're not happy and, and you got to have what you need or want. And if it's not happening, you just kind of go, well, let's get the next guy, you know. Uh, so Were I, you yeah, I can see line uh, when, when you're a Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit there. Were you ever lined up to be the next guy? Did anyone ever ask you to be? A guitar tech at Paisley? I was asked to be the guitar tech for Jesse Johnson from the time. Okay. And I was almost going to do it. But then there was, I was thinking about it in a local TV station. They would do a, kind of a segment on different problems in town. And I turned yeah. on the TV one day and they said, oh, Jesse Johnson's band, they're all outside. They're protesting the fact that he's not paying any of them. <laughs> I remember thinking, well, I guess I won't do that, you know. <laughs> yeah. but Jesse and I, we got along real well, but, uh, you know, and then maybe it wasn't his yeah. fault, but who was ever had the, the money was not uh, paying. So I, uh, but I had a chance to go out with the cars, but um, I didn't do it um, for some reason. But uh, that's, you know, I don't know if that, that, that kind of life, I, I don't, uh, it's not hmm. for me so much. Uh, the, constant traveling and there's not much glamour to it you know uh takumi uh, that's you know that's his thing he's he's good at it you know he likes everything about it you know yeah but uh i kind of like being at home in my shop i got everything where i'm supposed to be you know it's that's it kind of suits oh, I, me I think pretty you, well yeah i think you've made good decisions absolutely mm. and you mentioned um seeing prince at rehearsal was that during those those purple rain days and and delivering or dropping was, off yeah, the getting ready for the yeah i was getting ready for the purple rain tour which i think yeah. started in the early fall and yeah. uh them rehearsing and they they, re well, they they rehearsed and then i went to all the shows he did several shows at the saint paul civic center and i was at every single yeah. one of them you know and it was how fun, did it feel you know? to see uh, your guitar being played 
Mm. Oh, it was fun. It was, yeah, I felt like I'd had a little uh, touch of uh, stardom or had been involved in something that was a big deal, you know, and uh, yeah. I got to know the band, not Prince so much, but I knew everybody else in the band pretty well, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Mark Brown. Andre Simone was especially friendly. I, I really liked him a lot. He was just a pleasant, upbeat guy, you know, easy to approach. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was, yeah, it was, the whole thing was fun. It was fun all the time, you know. Uh, it was around that same time, uh, Bruce Springsteen used the St. Paul Civic Center to practice for the Born in the USA tour. I yeah. went to all those shows too. And or the rehearsals, and I had the, uh, I had uh, actually had Bruce uh, do a private show just basically for me. There was nobody in the sitting in the whole place, and they went through the whole show, and I sat out in the middle, and they they did the whole thing right in front of me. Nobody else, oh, wow. except the sound guy and the hmm. the crew. <laughs> Phenomenal. I I heard the other sure, uh, uh, bit of trivia that it was that uh, that those shows were. The Dancing in the Dark, where he brings up Courtney Cox, you know, the famous video of him oh. picking someone out of the audience. That was filmed at those those gigs in, in St. Paul. Yeah, not to digress too much, but I'll just tell you one thing. You know, when he went to the show, he had this little speech that he made. He'd, he'd say, everybody, I listened to the radio last night, and I heard this preacher say that rock and roll is bad, and I want to tell you rock and roll is great, and and you would have thought he had just come up with that, but in the in the rehearsal, he said he stopped and he went. Uh, I listened to the radio last night, and I listened to a preacher. He had it all mm -hmm. timed out. It was he was yeah. like an actor doing his lines, and I thought, boy, you know, he he made that very uh, convincing, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think another another guy who's, who's yeah, I think another performer who's more shy than you would give him credit for. He's a marvelous showman, but the more I've I've looked into Bruce, the more you realize that he's he's really you know quite a, a sensitive artist. Really, what I noticed with his shows is that he um, kind of dressed more and hung out more with the crew. Where you would have, if you didn't know who Bruce Springsteen was, you wouldn't know how to pick him out. Uh, except when he wasn't playing, he just seemed like one of the other guys. Prince yeah. was more, um, you couldn't, not as approachable at that time and, and, and spent a lot of time in the dressing room, you know, and all that. And he was always creating, you know, he was always, he was always looking ahead too, you know, they said that the Purple Rain tour could have gone on longer, but he, he was looking ahead to the next thing, you know. Yeah, I, I don't think that repetition of the same show with, with very little uh, fluctuation in the set list really sat well with him particularly towards, you know, the, the last 10, 15 years, the band yeah. had to know like 150 songs because they could go anywhere on any night. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, was very... I, I know we're, we're taking up a, a lot of your time, so I've got a couple of questions just to wrap up. Um, okay. In terms of, you know, the, the sort of the, the iconic guitars and, and the work that you've done, do you know that Prince fans hold you in such high esteem for what you've you've actually done with these guitars? 
Well, I get a lot of nice love uh, through my Facebook posts and all that. You know, I just had a birthday and I had 125 well wishes. And and the people that get the guitars, they're real happy, too. It feels good, you know. Uh, that's why I hung in there with the lawsuit. You know, uh, it went on for three and a half years, almost four years. People would say, oh, Dave, you know, you... People know you made this, just uh, walk away from it. And I thought, well, I think I got the moral high ground here. I'm not hurting anybody by making these. I never stopped Paisley Park from making their own. The fans, I, I'm making, I'm honoring Prince. Mm -hmm. The fans love them. Uh, it makes some people that get them are happy. And I'm just, uh, that's all good. And I'm not going to stop. I, I remember saying to myself, if, if Whatever it is, and maybe I'll even move somewhere else to make them. I'm I'm not going to stop. You know, I say that to myself yeah. every damn day. You know, yeah. so I, I do uh, appreciate that and, and acknowledge it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's lovely. I have people write to me, not just to get them, but don't even they just want to say hi and thanks. It's I feel very blessed. A lot of people, you know, like uh, people that uh, pick up the garbage and stuff. Nobody ever tells them they did a good job. You know, or all kinds of important jobs, you know, that people never thank them, you know, and I get that. It's, it's lovely. Great. And if somebody wanted yeah. to purchase one, I know you've got a, a bit of a backlog at the moment, but how do they go about making a request to you? Well, they could go. I have a Rusan Guitar Works Facebook, or they could email me at uh, daverusan at gmail.com, and I would send them a lovely online brochure and answer any questions yeah great and i suppose a final question from me i don't know how much you you sort of follow prince's music actually you know throughout it, uh, the years but do you have any favorite songs of prince's or guitar songs maybe um Diamonds and Pearls, that era. I like that stuff. And I would say yeah. my favorite thing is the uh, Sign of the Times concert movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I, the first time I saw that, actually wasn't too many years ago, I thought, my God, this is like the greatest rock concert I ever saw. It wasn't just a lot right. It was like a Broadway show and a play and a concert and and it just had so much, and I, I thought about how hard it must have been to get all that to come together like that. I was just astounded. I, I was so impressed. You know, the shows that I saw in, in the 80s were good, but at that point, it was just, I thought that was just astounding. You know, yeah. that, would be, that would be it for me. Yeah, that era. Great. Uh, Dave, Great. Thank, thank you. So this was just amazing. Listen to all the stories and listen to everything about... Uh, over your career and about your interactions with Prince and everything. Uh, we can't thank you enough for being so gracious with your time. Thank you very much, Dave. It was an absolute pleasure. Maybe down the road we can uh, do this again as the channel keeps yeah. going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Brian. Yeah. Absolutely.